Hello everybody. So good to be here. The other thing out in Sutherland is lions. Any of you following that story? This week, the, the lion that escaped from Karoo National Park, that was literally captured on my dad's farm. Where are we going? For the, for the student camp. Killed about 15 sheep before they got it. Choppers flying around trying to dart this thing. My dad's sending me videos. It was awesome. So that's where we're going for student camp, right? So if you aren't coming now, you're coming. Come see what we do out there. Isn't it just so beautiful? Amanda, your team just leading this morning, leading worship. It's such a reverence. Last week and this week like this. So I grew up in a, um, a completely Zulu-speaking church. And the, and the word running through my head as we were worshipping was this word, Bayete. It was, it was a cry of the king, Bayete. It's like, oh hail, oh hail the king. And it's the most appropriate kind of response in my heart as we, as we worship like that. And we sing, we exalt you. We exalt you. We exalt you. Hail the King, hail the King. It's like fall on our face before him. I think these moments where, where God just, I don't know what it is, but just presences himself a little bit more, a little bit more closely. We feel him a little bit closer. In those moments, it's so beautiful just to really dwell in them and not, and not rush on. I want to encourage you this. Uh, go home and, and get stuck into some worship this afternoon or this evening. I've been listening again to that um, Hillsong song, you know, that 10,000 or 10 billion What's it called? So will I, I think it's called. One of the most poetic, beautiful stories of creation to Revelation to, to Jesus. Uh, Jesus coming and 10 billion failures. That's us uh, now washed away. There's the lyrics like that. It's just a, a stunning song. Anyway, let me not get too distracted before I even start. So this morning, just want to anticipate that there's some new people with us in the room. So if you're new with us, and then some of you who are new might also be uh, people who are still searching. You wouldn't classify yourself as a Christian. Uh, maybe you've come along because a friend has promised you a nice lunch after this morning's meal, or maybe you've just been on a long journey and you're just struggling, and that's okay. You, you doubt, and you're not sure, is God real? Or maybe you've followed Him in the past, and now you feel a million miles away from Him, and I just want to really welcome you. This morning, and I want to actually just stop and applaud your courage. If you knew, and if you don't know Christ, this is a scary place to come, right? It's not an easy place to go into a new church and have new weird people looking at you and thinking, "Who are these people? What do they believe? Is this a cult?" So I just want to <laughs> applaud you. It's not, incidentally. And I just want to settle your fears, and we want to work walk a, a journey with you. I had a. A beautiful message when I woke up this morning. Um, I had a message on my phone from Vaughny. Some of you would know her. She was um, doing the Alpha video. She was saved here three years ago. She's gone back up to Joburg. She says, this is, I've got to find a new church I've never known anywhere but New Gen. She won't call it uh, One Hope. She's so used to New Gen. But one of our, one of our young ladies that uh, three years ago did Alpha with us, far from God, struggling with the Alpha, but stayed through the whole Alpha, seemed to like be wrestling with it. She's been saved this week. Powerfully, three years later, isn't God faithful? And Vaughny's still friends with her, was one of her friends, and just sending a message to say, hey, just want to let you know, so-and-so, giving their hearts to Jesus, they got stuck into church, they're reading the Word, they want to get into Bible study, and it's just wonderful to see how the faithfulness of God. So I'm encouraging you, if you don't know Him, there's space for a journey. There's space to, to walk this through with Him. Alright, so let's turn this morning to Ezra chapter 9. Now I'm going to guarantee you, money back guarantee that you've never heard a sermon out of Ezra chapter 9. And you'll see why when you go there, alright? This is not an easy text. It's certainly the most difficult text I've preached out of. And I'm actually going to spend the next 
probably three weeks um, in this text, or the next three preachers that I do at least, I'm going to be in and around Ezra chapter 3. So in the last, the last time I spoke, two weeks ago, we were speaking, we were handing out papers and we were looking at the, the flow of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that it happens in, in three very distinct flows. And the flows are, are very similar, and they happen like this, right? There's a whole lot of hope. There's anticipation, they're going back, they're going to build the temple, um, Zerubbabel is the leader, and then there's the sense of anticlimax. And then, then the next car comes and it's Ezra, and there's this huge sense of anticipation and hope, and they're coming to, to bring the Torah, and they're coming to bring community, and then he finds out that everyone's been marrying foreign women, and there's this, this deep sense of anticlimax, and we're gonna, that's where we're going this morning. Woo! going to be fun. And then... You get Nehemiah coming and he rebuilds the walls and there's an anticlimax there. And in the whole book, this author has been deliberately and, and carefully weaving in the story of hope and anticlimax. And so right at the end of the book of Nehemiah, which is often preached like a rah, rah, let's take the city, let's build the walls. And books are written like that. Actually, it's a story of a failed revival. If you go and look at the book of Nehemiah, it doesn't end well. At the end of the book, he goes back and he goes to the first section which is rebuilding the temple and he's like the temple's falling apart you guys aren't looking after it then he goes to the Torah and the community and he's like you're not even keeping the Sabbath the most simple of the law so that, that hasn't worked that's failed and he goes to his walls Nehemiah's precious walls and he's like you're selling goods from the walls on the Sabbath so none of this renewal which they were hoping for in revival has actually come to pass and so it's deeply um, anticlimactic and then at the same time as we've been speaking about that we've been speaking about an ongoing drama through the bible which is just basically on repeat and this is the drama right act one scene one people sin act two or somebody in act one however you want to look at it God says, I want to be with these people. And so he raises up a, a, a messianic type, a messiah type figure. So think of Moses or Abraham or Deborah or in a whole lot of different names we could throw out. Ezra Nehemiah, right in the midst of that. And then God frees his people with this figure, Samson. He frees them, shows his mercy, shows his enduring faithfulness. And then God invites this people, this unfaithful people and says, come live with me, come walk with me. Let's go together. They do it for a little while, and then invariably, back to Act 1. The people are sinning again. And there's this, this kind of hope anticlimax idea. Like it's, I like to think of it like waves. And it's like hope coming up onto the beach. Oh. Hope. Have any of you watched the, the Emoji movie? Anyone? You know, the man. You know, the guys, he's, he's the Emoji, the, the man. And it's like, it's like, really? And you say, it's like that. Oh, the, the beach, the, the tide is coming in. And then, man. <laughs> it's the whole way through the book is this cycle. And what I, want to, what I want to show you as we start this morning is actually we did it out of Ezra and Nehemiah, but we could have done it from the very beginning. Right? So what happens right back in Genesis? God creates. It's so beautiful. This man looks at him and goes, whoa, man. Ha, ha, ha. Funny joke. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's perfect. It's this high, hopeful anticipation. God himself is coming and walking with them in the evenings in the garden. A few chapters later, there's an angel guarding the entrance saying, you can't come in anymore. It's this deep sense of anticlimax. We go to, to the famous uh, Exodus itself. And hundreds of years in slavery, the Israelite people, they've been there under the whip of, of the pharaohs and of, of Egypt. And then God, by His mighty power, leads them out. And then there's a little moment where Pharaoh's army starts chasing them. And you're like, is this the anticlimax? But no, God comes through. And He takes them through the sea and drowns Pharaoh's army. 
And you're like, woo finally! Finally, a hope's going to come through. And then a few weeks later, they start bickering and complaining. And they say, we should have stayed in Egypt. At least we had meat. And you're like, what? 40 years as God waited for the entire generation to die out in the desert. Anticlimax of note. And then... King David and Solomon, we're reading this with my children at the moment, and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and Solomon is like this pinnacle of wisdom, and then he sins, and, and has hundreds of wives, and then Jeroboam, and thank you Lord, <laughs> for the country we live in. And we see the anticlimax of the kings coming after him. You can hear me alright, right? Great. I don't even need a microphone. And we see this pattern repeat and repeat and repeat systematically all the way to Christ Jesus. And then suddenly you read the stories around Jesus' birth, right? So we read it in like a Christmas kind of casual way. Oh, the angels came and they sang to the shepherds. No, no, this is, if you read it through the lens of the Old Testament, this is cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle of hope and anticlimax and desperation growing in the hearts of people. Is there ever going to be a way? And then Jesus comes. And then the angels explode across the heavens. And they sing, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Suddenly you're looking at Christmas in a whole different way. When you look at it through the lens of this, this Old Testament. Look at how one Peter, so Peter was one of the disciples, one of the, the disciples of Jesus, the naughty one. Listen to how he writes and what he says. He says, concerning this salvation... From Jesus, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They're trying to see when is the Messiah coming? Inquiring what person or time or spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. When's it going to happen? It was revealed to them, to these prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. Just, just say, but me. Say that now this morning. But me. They were serving you and me. They were serving future generations in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from the heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's where Kyle spoke so beautifully last week. The whole weekend was amazing. The pastoral care weekend with Kyle and Kirst. He spoke about the privileges of the gospel. Things into which angels long to look. And then, so then, then we get to Jesus, and then it's been rosy ever since then, right? I mean, ever since then, this, this anticlimactic cycle has been broken, right? I mean, so we, we, we see Jesus himself, the Messiah. Incidentally, a little side note, it gives me great courage to know that Jesus didn't bring all of his disciples through. Have you ever thought about that? Not even Jesus was able to bring every single person through. Anyway, just a <laughs> Doesn't like that. But think about Jesus coming. Finally, the Savior of the world is here. Finally, everything that the Old Testament has been showing us is, is pointing towards when prophets have longed to, to see it. Suddenly, it's here. Rejected? Crucified? Even in the story of Jesus. And then we, we go to the very first church. I mean, can you imagine being part of this church? I would have left one hope and gone there. 
the early Jerusalem church. I seriously, I mean, 5,000 people added in a day. Pentecost, the people who saw Jesus, who touched him, who walked with him for year after year. They the ones who are teaching you on Sunday. Sorry, Paul, we are here. And I'm okay with that. I'd be with you, right? What a church to be part of. Everyone is, is sharing their goods. No one is in need. No one needs to say, I, I had to get a job this week because we're still looking after you, Jeff. And then they persecuted under Emperor Nero and they scattered. I mean, we think planting out our life group is tough. You know, and the life group leader comes and says, you know what? We actually, there's more people we need to reach. We're going to have to take this group and go into two. Oh no, not this again. I've just got so comfortable. I've made such good friends. Why are you asking me to split again? You know, they call it the split. The life group split. Here these guys are. They've got friendships. They've lived in the city. They've got family in the city. They've got the apostles teaching them. And they've got to flee for their lives. And as they do, they begin to take the gospel like little flames out into the communities as they're going. And the gospel spreads like wildfire, right? But anticlimactic. I mean, so let me ask you this morning. Has anyone sitting here today had an anticlimactic church experience? Anybody? If you haven't, it's coming. (laughs) I mean, let's be frank. Some of you might have had an anticlimactic experience with me. I didn't get back to your email. I'm so sorry. I didn't come back to your WhatsApp. I didn't, I didn't, I thought you'd be like this, Paul, but you aren't. You're supposed to be a pastor. Damn straight I am, a sinful one. <laughs> I know, I know which anticlimax gets me the most. It's myself. It's this deep, deep desire within me to live a godly life. And then looking at myself and saying, that's not it, is it? It's this deep desire to just grow up. Do you know that I'm so petulant at times? I look, I'm embarrassed to look back on a situation, a, a fight I had with my wife, something I said to my kids. You know, I, I'm just petulant. It's full of selfishness, full of pride, full of impatience. And there's this deep desire to beat my sin, but I, I never seem able to beat it. And that is an anticlimax. And I carry it around with me everywhere I go. Every morning I wake up, I look in the mirror and say, anticlimax. (laughs) Effectively, that's what we're doing, right? But it's like this ongoing reminder. Now, all of it, everything, the Bible, uh, even Jesus himself, even, even not Jesus himself as in the person, but as in the situation surrounding him, and myself carrying all this anticlimax, all of it is pointing to this ultimate and final hope. So the final hope of the Bible is not... Caught up entirely in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is. But it goes to Christ and then through Christ, if that makes sense. So the pinnacle is Jesus and then it goes through Him to the new heaven and the new earth where we're going to live with God forever and He's going to be among His people. That's where, we, that's where we're going. Finally, God will truly live among us. If you want to do a great study, go and, go and look throughout Scripture for this little phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. Starts right in the beginning and ends in Revelation 6. Where finally, after hundreds of times where God says, I will be their God. They will be my people. Pointing forward in Revelation 6, he says, I am their God. He's not talking about, I can present, I live with the people. He's never done that before. Not even Adam and Eve had that. He just used to visit in the garden in the evenings. Now he's with them. He's living with them. All anticlimaxes are finally dealt with. 
Think about it. Think about that text in Revelation 5 or 6. No more pain. The anticlimax of health. No more death. No more sin. No more absence from God. No more cycles of this biblical drama. Meh. Romans 8, the author says it so beautifully. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. If you haven't been there for one of those, trust me. It's hardcore. Pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. And so we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children. We don't have them yet. we still got to suffer. we still got to live in sin. But He's going to give us these full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised us. For some of us, that's better news than for others of us. But it's still really good news. We were given this hope when we were saved. You see how he's pointing to that day. But for now, we don't live there, right? Even the most optimistic of us don't live there. So we're going to turn to Ezra 9, and we're going to go deep into a serious anticlimax. Are you there? You turned your Bible on or opened it or whatever you're doing on it. So here's the little context. Uh, Ezra is the second wave of exiles. Remember, they've been in, in Babylonian captivity. Ezra is the leader who brings them back. They, he's coming to establish the Torah and the law, and he's coming to bring back Jewish community. Remember, the identity is centered around community. They're not an individualistic society like we are. They're a collective society, a group. They, they center around the temple, around their religious worship, as many groups at this time have done. So Ezra leads this group back. It takes them four months, about a 1,500 kilometer journey. It's about 60 years after the first exile came back to rebuild the temple. So some time has passed. And as they're kind of having this celebration, in, in verse 1 of chapter 9, you'll see that the people, the leaders of the people, come to Ezra and say, actually, we need to tell you something. The leaders and everyone have been marrying foreign women. And so we're going to pick up in verse 2. For the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Okay. First major stumbling block for me in the text, right? The holy race... Polluted by other... Any apartheid bells going off anybody's head? This is racist, okay? Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. When I heard this, I tore my cloak. This is Ezra and my shirt. I pulled hair from my head and beard. Code for I was distressed. And I sat down utterly shocked. Then... All who trembled at the words of God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. Skip down to verse 6. He lifts his 
hands to heaven, he gets on his knees and he prays this beautiful prayer. I prayed, oh my God, I'm utterly ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you for our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens from the days of our ancestors until now. So he's, he's talking back to the Exodus. We have been steeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of pagan kings of the land. We have been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced, just as we are today. But now, we have been given a brief moment of grace, for the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to survive as a remnant. He has given us security in this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted us some relief from our slavery, for we were slaves. But in His unfailing love... Our God did not abandon us in our slavery. Instead, he caused the king of Persia to treat us favorably. So we should have been wiped out, but God in his grace has given us this little remnant, this this group of people who can carry on the cause and the line of Israel. But then he carries on, verse 10, And now, O our Lord, what can we say after all this? You've been gracious, but now we've messed it up. For once again we have abandoned your commands. Your servants, the prophets, warned us when they said, The land you are entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, the land is filled with corruption. Don't let your daughters marry their sons. Don't take their daughters as wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and prosperity of those nations. Verse 13, Now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt. But we have actually been punished far less than we deserve. For you, our God, have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. But even so, we are breaking your commands and intermarrying with people who do these detestable things. Won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives? People, the women, the children, the men, at the beginning of chapter 10, they come and they, they begin to kneel with them as he's praying and they begin to weep bitterly as a nation around Israel. And then there's this guy, Shekinah, who comes forward and he says, well, i got a solution. So Ezra's listening to him and he, this is his solution in verse 3 of chapter 10. Let us now make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and send them away with their children. Say what? Solution. So Ezra stood up, verse 5, and demanded that the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all the people of Israel swear that they would do as Shekinah had said. And they all swore a solemn oath. Hectic, right? And so chapter 10 carries on. They, They say to all the guys, you have to be here within three days, otherwise we're taking your land back from you. So all the men, obviously, rock up because they don't want their land to disappear. They rock up and this huge assembly of people is gathered. And Ezra goes to tell them what it is that they've decided. This is the solution, guys. We're going to divorce our pagan wives and we're going to send them and the children away. All right? And so this is the solution that these guys reach. Then the whole assembly, this is verse 12 and 10, chapter 10, verse 12. Then the whole assembly raised their voice and answered, Yes, you are right. We must do as you say. Then they added, This isn't something that can be done in a day or two, for many of us are involved in this extremely sinful affair. And this is the rainy season, can we? So we cannot stay out here much longer. If you look just just before that, they said it's cold, and they were shivering, trembling in verse... Where is it? 
9, verse 9, they were trembling both because of the seriousness of the matter and because it was raining. I love the little detail in there. So they select leaders to act on their behalf, and over the period of the next few months, Ezra closes out with basically the court cases of these men coming and saying, this is who I married, and then they make judgments, and then the guy goes and divorces his wife. But it's crazy. All right? So this is just a, a straightforward passage, right? <laughs> I mean... What are we doing reading this? And then there's this really crazy part in chapter 10. It's like, so, you know, you're facing this with our modern eyes. We're looking at this and we're like, this is just absurd what's going on here. And then it's like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. Each person who's guilty, they must sacrifice one ram to appease for their guilt. So you're sending away your wife and your kids, but don't worry, you're just going to sacrifice a ram and then you're not going to be guilty anymore. This is difficult, you know? Anticlimax? Anyone? You bet. So sometimes in Scripture you get to these moments. I'll, I'll call it a pull up the handbrake moment. Right? It's like, you got to stop. You can't, just, you can't just rush on, right? I'm just going to do a little application now into your lives this morning and hopefully you leave feeling edified and encouraged. I can't just do that. Okay, when you read something like this in Scripture, we've got to stop and ask this big question. How do we read the Bible? So actually what I'm going to do with the rest of my time this morning, I'm just going to park this for another time, for next week. And I'm going to park Ezra 9 and some of the detail I would want to get into around the racism and the marriage thing and the divorce thing and all of that. And I'm going to just try and answer this question. What do you do when you reach these kind of texts in Scripture? All right. Two weeks ago, I did a, why I read the Old Testament. Those of you who are here, why do you read the Old Testament? 2 Timothy 3.14. Right? We did an apologetic out of, that, out of that text. Here's how it goes. I'm very brief. The scripture will make you wise. Make you wise. It'll give you, it'll give you faith. Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It'll teach you. It'll rebuke you. It'll correct you. It'll give you, it'll give you gym muscles. Godliness. It'll, it'll train you for godliness. It'll give you these big muscles. And it'll equip you for every good work. And the shocker when I did that two weeks ago is when I said to you, actually, what is this talking about? If you stop and think for a moment, the scripture that does all of those things in your heart is the Old Testament. That's what he's writing. Paul writing to Timothy, that's what he's referring to, the ancient scriptures. Jesus does the same in Luke 24, where he says, I've fulfilled everything in the law and the prophets. And it says he taught them and opened their eyes to see. What was he using, folks? He wasn't using Corinthians. All right, and so I was, I was going after why we need to be engaged with and thinking through the Old Testament. But now I want to encourage you this morning, we're going to talk about how. That was why. I want to talk about how we read it. And I want you to write this down. I'm telling you, if you're going to, if you're going to survive by God's grace for the next years, hopefully you've got many years ahead of you, you're going to be reading the Old Testament many, many times, and you're going to come across confusing Scripture... You're going to come across scripture that makes no sense whatsoever. You're going to come across scripture that doesn't line up with what you know of God. You're like, this on the surface, this does not make sense. This doesn't seem like God, and it doesn't seem like a New Testament teaching. And what it does is that if you don't engage robustly and deeply with it, you end up leaving with this, this gnawing sense of distrust in God. I thought I knew him. Now I see this thing happening. I don't understand it. I'm not going to engage with it. But what I walk away with is the sense of gnawing distrust. Maybe he's not who I actually thought he was. Are you with me? So turn to Psalm 1. That's where we're going to start. 
So are you with me as a question? Are you with me? You still okay? No one catching a little snooze in the dark where I can't see you? Okay, so as we turn to Psalm 1, I want you, as we read this passage, to consider the life of this man. And it translates equally easily to woman, okay? So consider the life of this man or woman. It's a man who is blessed. That's what we know from the text in Psalm 1. Starts off straight away. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So that's what he doesn't do. But what does this blessed man do? What is he doing? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I want you to think about this wise man or woman. What are they doing? They are digesting scripture. They are mulling it over. They delighting in it. This is not just, oh, I guess I better have my quiet time today because you know a verse a day keeps the devil away. This is not that attitude. This guy is delighting. He's delighting in the word of God. He's thinking about it all day. He reads it in the morning and then he's thinking about why does that work? How does that apply into my situation? How does that apply to my boardroom? What does that look like on Tuesday when I put my hand up in my office and I've got a suggestion? What does this word change about the way I live my life? That's how this guy is living it. Now look at what he is. Like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Planted by streams of water, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to fade. I'm not going to fizzle out. I'm not going to chicken out in those moments where I'm on campus and, and there's someone that needs to hear about Jesus. I'm going to say, Lord, I'm like a tree planted by streams of water. Your grace and your Holy Spirit is flowing through me and it comes out not in some legalistic, I've got to tell people about Jesus. But it comes out because it's beautiful and it's living and you're meditating and living in the scripture. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, what, what's the point of Psalm 1? The point is be like this man. If it was a woman, be like this woman. Be like them. Meditate on Scripture like this. Think deeply. We have to ask wisdom questions. Be wise like this person. So here's my first big point on how do you read difficult texts in Scripture? You read looking for godly wisdom, not method. Okay? Write it down, I'll explain it to you. Look for wisdom, not method. So as we read, we ask what is the wisdom here in this text? Not what are the mechanics around the text. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. It's, in other words, it's not always, well, they did this, so I must do that. That's method, right? So here, let's think about the story of, of Saul. It's a very well-known story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. There's a prophet, Samuel, and there's Saul. Samuel the prophet comes to Saul and he says, you know these Amalekites, there's a whole long backstory as to why God wants to destroy them, but for the sake of today, God wants to destroy the Amalekites. Again, not a text that you take someone searching for Christ to necessarily as the first text. Alright? So Saul is given this very clear instruction. He goes out, Samuel comes back to him in Samuel 15, and he says to him, what is the sound of bleating that I hear? Because the command of God was to obliterate even the animals, right? Even the sheep. What is the sound of bleating that I hear? So Saul backpedals and he starts to justify himself. He says, well, we killed all the rubbish, but we kept the best stuff so that we could sacrifice it to God. Naughty badge for Saul. Samuel then rants at Saul in, in this chapter in 15. And he, he says to him, don't you know... That, that burnt offerings and sacrifices are not as pleasing to God as obedience, right? 
And he, he actually has this little line in there. He says, is not obedience better than sacrifice? And then effectively what he's saying to Saul is, why are you trying to think for God? He's clearly told you what to do, but you think you've got a better idea. That's called spiritual pride. I, I, I know a bit better here, Lord. You know, you don't quite get my context at university. You know, you don't quite understand the people I'm having to evangelize to. So I know you said I should do it like this, Lord, but I'm actually just going to go around it like this because, you know, you're missing something. Spiritual pride. And in that moment, Samuel says to Saul, God's ripped the kingdom away from you. And we then see it unfolding with David as the kingdom gets passed. Now, what do you do with this tough text? When you reach a text like this, it's like Ezra 9 in its difficulty to apply into our lives. So what's the wisdom in the story? Well, let me tell you what the wisdom is not. The wisdom is not to go and obliterate the guy at work who bothers you. And then take out his pets as well, just so that you, you know, completely comply into the word of God. You know, obliterate little fluffy dog. You know, now you've, you've basically followed what Saul did, right? Now you've been obedient to God. Now that's not, that's not the wisdom. Sorry, that really tickles my sense of humor. <laughs> no, the wisdom of God is that the wisdom from this passage, when you read asking God, I don't want the method, I don't want to follow the method, I want to look for what is the wisdom of God in the passage. The wisdom of God is this. We obey God in whatever He asks of us, even when we feel we have a better idea or we don't understand why he asked us to do that thing. That's the wisdom from that story, in a nutshell, right? So we look at the spirit of the text. We look at the wisdom in the text rather than copying the method. So that's the first big idea of how we read. Now here's the question again. What do you do when you reach a text in the scriptures that's confusing, that's jarring, or that leaves you trying to figure out, like, isn't this wrong? Isn't this wrong? Okay, secondly, we read big picture rather than minute detail. Okay? We read big picture rather than minute detail. The the Protestant reformers had this saying, and what they basically said is that the message of Scripture is essentially clear, even if not everything in Scripture is as clear. Okay, So the message of Scripture, the salvation that God brings to us through Jesus Christ is clear throughout Scripture if you look at it in a holistic, big picture way. But sometimes when you drill down onto the one verse or the two verses or the one chapter, it's not nearly as clear. The Westminster Confession, which would have been much more helpful if we had Eskimo, it would come up behind me, but I'll read it for you and you have to concentrate a little bit, but this is what it says. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Otherwise, it's not as obvious for different people of different intellects and whatever else, or the way that you wire it is not as clear. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, in other words, using just their ordinary minds, those who have no learning, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Does that make sense? So we read Scripture saying, Lord, what, what is the big picture message that I'm trying, that you're trying to show me here, rather than what is the minute detail I need to spend the next five years writing a PhD about? 
All right. Now, I want to get a little bit up your nose here this morning because I, I think pastorally this is massive because I'm seeing across the church, I think people are getting stuck in controversial and difficult Christian issues, right? So let's think about a couple of them. Let's think about um, things that you might have spent hours in your life group talking about. Things like predestination, all right? Things about the Holy Spirit. So we had, a, we had a great discussion this week. I had a group in my home. We were talking about the Holy Spirit. And it's a hard topic, you know? So the big question is, well, where do you get him? Do you get him all at salvation? Or do you get him later on in some kind of baptism later on? Where do you, where do you get the Holy Spirit? Another one that's a, that's a big topic that seems to go around churches is, is Israel. How much time and, and thought and energy do we give to Israel? Guys, I want to, I want to encourage us this morning. I firmly believe we're getting the emphasis wrong a lot of the time. A lot of time, the scripture is given to us for what reason? To obey. The scripture is given to us to obey. And it's wonderful that you understand the intricacies of some of the stuff around predestination. But does it help you on a Monday morning in the argument that you're having with your wife to be gracious and kind and demonstrate fruit of the Spirit? I'll ask her. (laughs) She'll tell me you're lying. See, the the point of Scripture is obedience to God. It's right standing, right relationship with God. It's not to present a thesis. Now, I'm all for Bible studies. You guys know that. That's why we're pushing them and getting as many of you upskilled as we can around theology. But knowledge is not what drives more and more and more Bible studies. What drives more and more and more Bible studies is that we've been with Jesus and we get our hearts on fire and we so desire Him that we're like, I've got to go and study more of Jesus. I want a Bible study. Not like, no, technically, this part of the Bible, you know? Do you know what I mean? See, and and my problem with Israel is is not a problem with Israel. If you hear and you hear me preach, I'm preaching out of Jeremiah. I I love the Israelite nation, that part of God's plan. I'm not some replacement theology guy. My problem is, is that it seems to get a hook into people and makes them see just Israel, Israel. Everything they watch, everything they listen to, everything they want to think about is Israel. And I'm like, that's great for a little part of your life but don't spend 95% of your time on it right the Holy Spirit the point is are you producing fruit of the Spirit so yes is it important is it important that we understand something about predestination absolutely do we need to be clear around when we when we receive the Holy Spirit absolutely but guys it's not the place where we spend 95% of our time I think That the devil is doing a number on Christians by distracting them with these issues. I think there have been so many life groups and friendship moments, coffee moments, where we're talking with one another and they're hijacked by these moments. I want to speak to mature believers this morning. Mature believers in our midst. I want to tell you, guard your mouths in a group setting. Guard your mouths. Be thoughtful. Let's go after obedience because we're in a, we're in a society that is heavily, heavily weighted towards knowledge. Gathering more knowledge, information. We're already there. We've got to help swing this pendulum back to saying, yes, but that's great that you understand that. What has God asked you to do? How does this affect the way you look after your children? How does this affect the way that you fill in your tax return, sir? That's the question that Scripture is asking. It's not primarily a book to be studied. It's a book to change us. All right, point three, and they get faster from here. Point three is that storytelling does not equal endorsement. Storytelling 
does not equal endorsement. Now, there must be, in our minds, as we come to difficult text, a clear distinction in our minds between what God endorses and is pleased with and what Scripture is simply reporting in excruciating detail the story of what happened. Does that make sense? One of the things that I cherish so much about the Bible is its brutal honesty. I mean, you go and read a history book about a king who, you know, overthrew another kingdom. All he's telling you is this glory story. It's like the, it's the equivalent of like the man at the bra. And then I just, yeah, I just like, oh, poor, yeah. <laughs> That's the equivalent of, of a lot of the way that history is written. The Bible is excruciatingly detailed about the sins of its greatest leaders. The ones that, we, that you're tempted to say, well, they're the hero. And then you're like, oh, no, they're the zero. You know, it's like, this, this is the Bible. It gives it huge credibility in my mind over other historic resources. But while it does that, it adds to the complexity. It adds to the complexity. Because you've got to ask, is God endorsing this? Is God pleased with this? So Ezra 9, is God endorsing racism? Where he says, where the guy says, we're a, we're a holy race and we're polluting ourselves with other people. That's the language he uses, polluting. Oh. See, this is where the, the tools of how we read the Bible begin. Even the ones I've taught you so far, the, this is how they begin to mesh together, right? And, and we think about, we think about the first one that we, we need to think about, um, the wisdom. So we're asking, as we come to Ezra 9, we're asking, what is the wisdom here? What's the wisdom? What's the wisdom around divorce? What's the wisdom around how, what they're doing? What's the wisdom and what, what's the big picture? What is the big picture of what Ezra's trying to do? Number four. You got number three? Number four, have grace for context. We have to try and immerse ourselves as, as helpfully as we can by reading, by thinking, what is this original story? The person who wrote that story has something in mind. What is this leader facing that's different to what I'm facing today? What pressures is this person facing? What's, what sinfulness is this leader facing in his own life? What blind spots does he have? What pressures are they facing that don't easily translate into today? So here's an example out of Ezra 9. As far as I've been told and that I can find, our culture is the first culture, and think about this, the first culture ever that has shifted into a space which is considered individualistic rather than group mentality. Ever. Around the world for thousands of years. Alright? Now we need to recognize that, guys. We need to recognize that we are part of a society which has shifted into an individualistic Mindset. We, we struggle, I struggle deeply to grasp what it means to be part of a collective and that that matters more than me. Because since I was this high, I've been told that I'm important. That I'm what I need to fight for. So we see this coming out pastorally. You see it coming out practically. So think about maybe a conversation you've had with a parent or, or, or someone who's going through a divorce. And this is the kind of phrase that you'll hear from someone. They'll say something like, don't I deserve a chance to be happy? Don't I deserve a chance to, to find true love? 
And that's the, that's the way they'll put it. And now, the way that a collective society sees this is, don't you understand that in your, your pursuit of your individualistic happiness, you're destroying the happiness of a family? Kids and mom are left broken on the floor because you're chasing Pocky? Because you've got your one shot at happiness in your life? And, and you can see how that shift massively alters the, the, the kind of canvas that we're looking at, right? It's a huge, it's a huge swing in the way that we see things. So you can look at Ezra's deep contextual concern. And while we might not agree with them, it brings empathy into our hearts rather than just judgment. When we're actually asking, what is this guy facing? What is he trying to do? When you read in verse eight, but now we've been given a brief moment of grace. You can hear him kind of like, off the page for the Lord our God has allowed just a few of us to survive as a remnant now Ezra is the leader of this thing and this is his heart he's like there's just a few of us I've got to protect them I've got to keep them safe I've got to I've got to make sure they're not mixing with everybody else right verse 14 but even so we are breaking your commands and intermarrying with people who do these detestable things won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives can you feel the fear god i can't believe we've done this you're probably going to obliterate us this tiny little remnant you're going to take us away out because we haven't listened now again not endorsing it just saying we need to understand context. We need to know that the most godly leaders doing things in the light of all scripture, when you read the whole scripture which we now have, which they didn't have, and we'll talk about that in a moment, we've got to have grace when they are clearly doing something that is wrong and we need to evaluate it for what it is. So here's, here's that little point I wanted to make about all of scripture. These guys are not living with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles ringing in their ears. Jesus hasn't yet come and raised the bar on divorce, as an example. It says Moses says, you shouldn't get divorced, or you can get divorced with a certificate. I say, and Jesus raises the bar. These guys are not living with the things that are ringing in our ears as if they were, you know, commonplace knowledge for Ezra. It wasn't. And we have to have grace for that as we read. So in other words, modern readers, it's a mistake to hastily and simplistically judge them in their context based on what you know today. Have some grace, have understanding for the situation, and look for the wisdom when you can't follow the method. Does that make sense? Number five, we just got two more and we're done. Number five, when you come to a difficult text of Scripture, trust what you know to be true of God. Trust what you know to be true of God. If you read something and you read something and you're like, this doesn't line up with God, you don't understand it. Simple. If you understand who God is and something in His Word contradicts, makes Him look as if He's endorsing and is pleased with that and you know that it's not true of God, you can be rest assured that it's your interpretation that's wrong, not God. Alright? Do you remember this, this quote I used a little while ago? When you can't trace the hand of God, we need to learn to trust His heart. When you can't figure out in the circumstances you're facing, in the suffering that you're facing, you can't see His hand. God, this makes no sense. Nothing in front of me makes sense. Are we going to choose to trust the heart of God? Now, I want to just speak pastorally over you for a moment. I know that some of you are sitting here, even as we do this section in Ezra and Nehemiah, and you're feeling overwhelmed. 
How am I ever going to follow all these hyperlinks that Paul's showing us? I get three, four days a week to prepare for this half an hour, you know, optimistically half an hour. I mean, we all know. We all know it's not half an hour, right? But I just want to take some of that off you guys. In fact, it's a, it's a beautiful moment for you to lean in to church. To lean into a Sunday morning. Lean in in your devotions to some other things and read and, and be reading a book like Colossians or whatever and be going detail by detail. And then come on a Sunday and just read widely. Ezra and Nehemiah, read it three or four or five times. And come and I'll try and take you through it step by step. We're going to go into this racism thing. We're going to go into it and we're going to talk about it. We're going to go into how, how do you set yourselves aside from... We are people who are called out. As a nation, so we've got to always ask this, this question, well, where are the boundaries? Where's, where do we exclude people and where do we include them? And this is some of the same stuff that Ezra and Nehemiah is facing. It's relevant for us today. Who do we marry? These are big questions which are going to come out, but I just don't want you to feel overwhelmed that you can't follow every hyperlink. I think there might be some of you sitting here and you're saying, well, I've just started to read the Bible, and it feels like you're asking me to like make hundreds of associations. Like, oh, in James it says this, and Romans it says this. I just want you to relax. Okay, I want you to relax as you're reading God's Word. I want you to lean into what this church is already offering or other things that are being offered out there. There's some brilliant programs going on. Lean into them. Let the hard work be done by some of the teachers and come and listen and learn and you'll grow. And here's my main kind of encouragement here. You'll get there. Employ the Psalm 1 mentality. Be that man. Be that woman who's coming and meditating on the Word of God. And you will grow. You, he doesn't say, you know, meditate on the Word of God in, in, in 90 years' time or 80 years' time. You know, then you're going to be a tree planted by the river. You're a tree now. Planted by the living waters now. You can draw grace now. The Holy Spirit will equip you now. So trust what you know to be true of God and grow in your reading. Grow in your reading. Even you can see this in in Ezra. He might have made some mistakes, and we're going to talk about those in the weeks to come. But look at his heart. in Verse 15 of chapter 9. O Lord God of Israel, you are just. He knows who his God is. We come before you in our guilt as nothing but an escaped remnant, though in such a condition none of us can stand in your presence. Listen, look at their heart response in 10, chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made this confession, weeping and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. This is the heart. Yes, they're going to get things wrong. Just like who? Point to the person next to you and say, you. First, if it's your wife or your husband. Say, me. Say, me. And again, it just gives us empathy into the story. These are people weeping before God, wanting to do the right thing. Right? And here's the last point for this morning. Point six, remember hope and anticlimax. See, we live in, we live in the already not yet, if that makes sense. So we already saved. We already justified. But in another sense, it's still going to happen. There's still going to be a day where God is going to judge us, and that's where He's going to declare us just. So it's the future brought all the way into my present. It's the already not yet. So we live in this anticlimactic way. And Scripture is written. Scripture is written to show us this anticlimactic way of our lives. Right? Who, whose life has ended up 
if you're over 30, whose life has ended up like you planned it? Who of you thought marriage was going to be exactly like it is? Don't laugh too loud, Batesy. <laughs> careful, careful. But there's this, isn't there this anticlimactic feeling that we've got to go to God and we've got to say, Lord, I, I didn't think it would be like this. I didn't know it would be so tough coming home and having five children. Lord, I'm tired, man. I'm so tired. You know? And in it, God is stripping away selfishness and sin and individualism. So let's end here. As we're going to take communion, I want to remind us that yes, we live in this anticlimactic space. But Romans 8, we read, we read out of it earlier, but I read a shorter, per, a shorter portion. I want to read verse 18. Why don't you go there with me and let's stand together. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Okay, so we're reading in verse 18. I think I'm in the ESV. I think that's the version I'm on here. Um, And let's read together from verse 18. Yet, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory He will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will. In other words, it didn't want it to happen. All creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Some of you this morning, I want to declare scripture over you. You're going to live one day. I know you're going through difficult things right now. Difficult health things. Difficult financial things. Difficult marriage relational things. We're going to live in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. And we believers, we're also groaning, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. So we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children. Oh Lord, we long for that moment, including the new bodies He has promised us. Lord, right now in this room, where people are fighting their bodies, where there's illness, where there's cancer, a whole ton of different things in this room that can be wrong right now. Father, would you come and bring comfort? Would you come and bring hope? Lord, we even ask you for your healing. We know you can do it here. And even if you choose not to, Father, we look to this day where we will walk, including our new body, and we were given this hope when we were saved. Father, the greatest gift The greatest gift, the greatest miracle of all is the miracle of salvation. That you for thousands of years 
as man has tried and tried and tried, and good leaders, godly leaders have, have, have risen up to lead your people, and yet still we, we slide back. And Jesus comes and brings the hope of salvation. And as we cling to that hope of salvation, you awaken in us a whole new hope. Not just, not just for the temporary God, but for eternity. And our hearts groan this morning. We look to you. We lay everything before you and we open our hands and we surrender. We surrender before you. We are yours. Write us into your story, God. Use us as you will. Expend us as you will. We are yours. Father, thank you for courage right now, flooding into this room through the name of the Holy Spirit. Right now, you come and bring courage to people who are facing circumstances that they don't know how they're going to face, that are facing economic things, this is so many, God, but you know each individual in this room right now, Lord, I ask for courage in their hearts that you win. That you win. That we have this future hope that no matter what we experience here, you're our husband. In you we trust for our finances. In you we trust for work. In you we trust for relational healing. In you we trust for reconciliation in our land, God. In you we trust yes. for every perceivable thing, con conceivable thing that we could think of this morning. Lift our eyes, God. Lift our eyes to see.